Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the 1997 film Armistad. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. There was a lot of pressure riding on the Christmas time release of Steven Spielberg's Amistad. Not only were the critics and fans comparing it to Schindler's List before even seeing a frame of film, but Spielberg's new company, DreamWorks, was looking to make the film its first bona fide Oscar contender, hopefully as a Best Picture nominee. And as usual, Spielberg had John Williams on board, pun intended, to write a score that would tug at the heartstrings. I'm excited to have a co-host with me for this episode, and it's someone regular listeners of the podcast will know well. Joining me is Brian Martell on the show for the third time. Uh, Hi, Jeff. As usual, it's great to be with you again, this time talking about a film, of course, featuring not only my favorite composer, but my favorite director as well, the great Steven Spielberg. Ah! Now, some people might think I like Spielberg all the time, but, you know, I fell for John Williams in 1977 with Star Wars. Uh, It took a bit longer for Spielberg to gel with me. I I didn't really gel with him until 1981 in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but uh, since then he's been a fave. Uh, At that point, I look back at his previous films and uh, always look forward to any film coming out directed by him. I'm a fan of his storytelling, his cinematic vision, and he has a flair for picking and presenting projects to the public, whether as director or producer. So I do remember the great anticipation in waiting for Amistad and the score by John Williams to hit uh, record stores and theaters in December of 1997. I, uh, I enjoyed both of them greatly then and now, despite uh, people listening might think I, I think less of it. But no, I got a few nitpicks here and there with the most recent viewing, but I still really enjoy the film. Yeah, so do I. And it was the fourth film score John Williams would write in less than a year. It wasn't a major undertaking for the maestro, but likely a little more exhausting for him at 65 and a half years old. After he completed work on Seven Years in Tibet, Williams took some time to conduct concerts around the country in summer 1997 including a couple with the Boston Pops. Though he had officially ended his tenure there in 1993, he was a laureate conductor for life and would hold a concert fair once or twice a year while he was working on a film score at a cottage nearby. And that came in handy when it was time to work on the Amistad score. He enlisted the help of two Boston Pops regulars to give a strong voice to the score, both vocally and musically. To serve as the musical voice of Sinke, the slave who leads the revolt against his captors on the title ship, Williams brought on mezzo-soprano Pamela Dillard, who had sung in previous Williams concerts before, so the two were very close and knew each other well. And his good friend Tim Morrison, and our good friend too, was back with his trumpet for a a few key moments in the score. I must say his playing adds much to the Americana flavor of the score, particularly in his performances of the theme for John Quincy Adams, which we'll be listening to shortly. While a native of of Atlanta, where she is quite busy teaching and performing today, soprano Pamela Dillard made her professional debut with the Boston Lyric Opera and worked with the Boston Symphony, where she obviously crossed paths with John Williams, who made use of her talents in the score, which, again, we'll be listening to shortly. So the journey from idea to the first 
take of performance of the score was a long one, about 15 years. Debbie Allen, who is the famous dancer and choreographer and also actress and director, read stories about the Amistad uprising in the mid-1980s and immediately thought of Steven Spielberg as the director, especially after he had done such great work with The Color Purple. But Spielberg wasn't interested, mostly because there was no script written, and who could blame him? Once Allen got a script in the mid-1990s, she tried to convince HBO Pictures to finance the movie with the provision that she would get Spielberg to direct it. HBO agreed, but at the time, Spielberg was busy launching DreamWorks, and he said yes to directing it if DreamWorks got a slice of the pie. Now, what's extraordinary about this film is the tremendously strong cast it assembled. At the top of the list were Morgan Freeman and Anthony Hopkins. For Morgan Freeman, it was another slam dunk in a history of very strong roles. And it was, incidentally, the polar opposite of his Alex Cross in Kiss the Girls, which came out two months earlier. Welshman Anthony Hopkins jumped right into American history again two years after portraying Richard Nixon, this time playing former President John Quincy Adams. Hopkins wasn't the first actor to play more than one American president, but he is the only one to get an Oscar nomination for playing both of them. And at the time, he was the big draw of the film. But Amistad really belongs to a native of the West African nation, Benin, and his name is Jaiman Onsu. Amistad was Onsu's sixth film, and his first playing the lead role. And while it was essentially a breakout performance as Sinke, Unsu was already well-known in other circles as a model and an actor in several music videos, including my favorite, Janet Jackson's Love Will Never Do Without You. Unsu's performance was greatly helped by his strong physical stature, but also by speaking the Mende language perfectly, at least based on what Mende language experts had said about his performance. He does speak a few English words in the film, but otherwise, you would never know that Mende was not Unsu's native language. A small curiosity in the cast was Matthew McConaughey, whose star was still on the rise but seemed out of place among the likes of Morgan Freeman and Anthony Hopkins. But I think that was the point. He played a lawyer who seemed out of his depth in handling the case of the slaves who were being tried for murdering the crew of the Amistad, and McConaughey played it very well. And then there were some great names in the supporting cast, a lot of them British actors playing Americans as a possible bit of irony. Pete Postlethwaite, Peter Firth, Jeremy Northam, and especially Nigel Hawthorne moving on from playing King George II to President Martin Van Buren. Yeah, when I first saw the film in 97, I also thought Matthew McConaughey was 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 out of his league, I guess. Too much of a lightweight compared to the rest of the cast. But watching it 23 years later, I agree. He, he's perfectly cast in the film. Spielberg wants us to believe his character is not going to be able to uh, be up to the task of the challenge presented in the courtroom. And thus, we're more impressed when he turns out to be actually very, very much up to the challenge. Uh, a good performance by Matthew McConaughey, I have to say. As for... I always get his name wrong. Jimon Onsu? Jimon Onsu. Jimon Onsu. My apologies, Jimon. I I, I love you as an actor. I just can never pronounce your name right. But I think he is the film. He's the only, he's the, all I remembered from it from the first viewing. 
uh, an incredible performance. He is the film. It's an outstanding performance on all levels. It's amazing. And I'm always surprised that uh, Jamin didn't have a more uh, illustrious career after, after this film. Um, I'm always pleased and excited uh, when I see him on the screen based on my memories of Amistad. Uh, and I'm always disappointed he doesn't get more prominent roles in projects today. And actually, we forgot to mention one more person in this great supporting cast, and I'll probably screw the name up as well, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, in his film debut, in fact, playing a former slave, now living free, who provides service to McConaughey and company as a translator, as he actually can speak Mende. Now, uh, Chiwetel acquitted himself well, but he's going to earn great fame uh, almost 19 years later, starring in 12 Years a Slave in 2013, playing a free man, hero becomes a slave. Uh, but I think much as uh, Jimon is the is really the key center that keeps us into Amistad, I think Chiwetel is the is the key focus that keep that makes that film work as well. Oh yeah, he is a great actor, and he is another standout in Amistad. And it's great that. His debut was a big role, and it was also in a Steven Spielberg film. I mean, not many people could say Steven Spielberg directed their first film. So Spielberg worked with this talented group of actors on both American coasts, and filming was done in a remarkable 31 days, another testament to Spielberg's amazing efficiency. And unlike his work on Schindler's List, Williams didn't have to work on both coasts to get his score recorded. Everything was performed in Hollywood in fall 1997 in just a few days. Now, there was one piece of music John Williams had to write and get recorded quickly first, and that was the music to accompany the new logo for DreamWorks at the start of their movies. The first movie released by DreamWorks was The Peacemaker in September 1997, and naturally, Spielberg was going to ask John Williams to write some music for the logo, which was a boy fishing while sitting on a crescent moon that turns into the D of the studio's name. Williams had composed some music for Spielberg's Amblin Studios logo, but that was a production studio and not a full-fledged movie studio. These 20 seconds would finally put him on the list of composers who have written music for studio logos, from Alfred Newman's iconic 20th Century Fox fanfare to the Universal Pictures themes composed by James Horner and Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, I love this DreamWorks theme. The guitar gives that bucolic and innocent feel while the brass adds in the grandeur, which shows the different sides to not only Spielberg, but the films that the studio would make as well. Yeah, nice little logo music, I have to admit. Now, as far as the music for Amistad, uh, there's a bit of dichotomy in the score that Williams wrote at uh, the same time. It's something that uh, we, we've heard before to an extent on John Williams' other scores, uh, but never to this degree. On one side, you have the material uh, for the African slaves, which leans heavily on African instrumentation. On the other is the Americana music that's more indicative of his music of the era, very subdued and underplayed. 
These two differing styles of music make the score a tough listen away from the film, especially because it doesn't give us that grand epic romanticism of what we might call his golden era, or what I call his golden age. I know we disagree a little bit on the terms for that, but I personally prefer the John Williams sound that dominated his scores between Star Wars and Temple of Doom. Pops up a bit before, pops up a bit after, but really post... Um, Schindler's List, his scores are really subdued, with, I think, the exception of this score, The Lost World, Sleepers, and uh, Rosewood. I actually forgot about that one, but I just finished listening to your podcast, and I said, oh yeah, I, I, I forget how great that score is. But again, his scores outside of those are still fine. I'm not saying he sucks, or they suck. They're just not as fun to listen to outside of the film, right? The albums tend to have one very nice theme that's repeated to start and finish the program, then nice music, but kind of nondescript for my taste. Uh, again, if people are curious for my taste, things pick up after the Phant with the Phantom Menace score and what follows in the summer of 99. I don't think you're alone. I get a lot of emails from people who continue to protest that the Golden Age did not end with Schindler's List, and they say it continues all the way past Phantom Menace. So uh, everybody agrees with you there. So I agree about also what you said, the duality of the Amistad score and making it hard to listen away from the film. But in the film, it works quite well, especially because both sides of this musical coin work well with each other. Now, the African melodies rely mostly on the typical tribal percussion and rhythm, similar to what Williams used to great effect in The Lost World earlier in the year. Now, we'll get to that in a second, but I want to highlight the main theme of the film, which we can safely say belongs mostly to Sinke. I do find it odd that it's a female voice introducing us to this theme, but on deeper thought, it seems to soften the rough edge and brutishness of the main character. And in certain points, it feels like this voice is crying for the Africans as they go through this ordeal. That might have been Williams' intent on using a voice for this main theme all along, as that will be important much later in the score. And it's Pamela Dillard's voice that's the first thing we hear in the movie, humming out his theme before even the opening credits appear on the screen, and then later in the aftermath of the mutiny on Amistad. Yeah, I think the, the I always call it a keen, keening motive of of Pamela Dillard's uh, voice at the opening. For me, it became the theme for the suffering that Sinke and the Africans enslaved on the Amistad endured, and I think by extension, all the slaves in America at the time. Now, there's the revolt that uh, great opening shot with uh, Sinke pulling the nail out of out, out of the uh, the wood. It's fantastic. Williams didn't write any music for that. It doesn't need it. The storm sound effects, the the screams, and the sound of the battle provide all the soundscape we the audience need here. But it, it's immediately after that when uh, Sinke and and the the slaves keep two 
sailors alive with the idea that they're going to take them back to Africa. And, and Cinque is keeping watch on them late at night. Well, one of them is, is essentially taking them back to Africa. We find out later they're pretending to. But Cinque's on to them because he notices the stars are changing direction and, and he figures that the boat is being turned around. And he, he confronts them. But this cue, mostly filled with a wordless choir vocalizing Cinque's theme in detail, is great. And for my ear, it had a bit of a close encounters of the third kind vibe as well. Now, for me, one of the standout cues in the early part of the film is the music written for Cinque's desperate escape attempt as the American Navy arrives and recaptures the Amistad while Cinque is leading a landing party ashore to retrieve some water. Cinque and his crew are intercepted on their way back to the Amistad, and so Cinque jumps off the, the boat and starts desperately swimming toward the sun, eastward in his idea of home. And the cue begins with African drums pulsing in the background and flutes piercing the rhythms as the men desperately try to row back to the ship. And low strings and basses start to grow in volume as the naval party intercepts Cinque and he jumps into the sea. The African chant grows with Cinque's desperation and exhaustion as he swims toward that sun. Now, the, the soundtrack album version puts the male African chant in during the early part of the scene, but it was uh, taken out of the film version. Version It comes in later. I also like that all this music builds to a crescendo and then suddenly goes quiet as Sinkei decides the only thing to do is drown and he sinks beneath the surface.
Now, my favorite part of that cue are those children's voices that vocalize Sinke's secondary theme as he rethinks his decision to drown and returns to the surface. It's just lovely. I love it. And it's a great musical choice to have that male choir vocalize Sinke's theme when he goes underwater. I kind of think it's the choir yelling out to Sinke to, don't do it, don't do it, come back up to the surface. It could be. Other composers might have made the decision to use an orchestra instrument for that, but a choir just works so much better. Now, the Americana portion of the score comes around the 27-minute mark, when the characters played by Morgan Freeman and Stellan Skarsgård go to Washington to ask John Quincy Adams to speak in favor of the Amistad slaves. This is a somewhat comical introduction to the former president, who is now a member of the House of Representatives, as we see him asleep during a lengthy tirade by a colleague. But to let us know that this is a man of extreme importance, Tim Morrison's trumpet comes in and plays this theme very proudly without any comic overtones. Yeah, it's a good introduction to his character, actually, as you think he's asleep, but maybe he's not, but he has a good comeback anyway. And the scene where he dis- discusses the slaves with uh, Freeman and Skarsgård, it lasts five minutes. I think it highlights why John Williams can write so well for dialogue-heavy scenes. The theme of the instruments that play, play the music aren't overpowering. They're just bubbling underneath to put a stately emotion to the scene as we watch these fine actors do their work. Now, this theme for John Adams makes the Americana part of the score very worthwhile, even if the variety isn't as strong as the music for the Africans. At best, it shows how John Williams can write great music in any style and keep the flow steady.
I certainly noted uh, preparing for this that we're going to get a very similar sound seven months later in Saving Private Ryan, especially with the French horns in that score. Now, personally, uh, you know, I love the nail coming out at the beginning. The sequence that, that I always loved was uh, all due to Morgan Freeman's performance is a character named Jodson, uh, who is an ex-slave, but, but he was born on a plantation. And he and McConaughey board the Amistad, and while McConaughey's looking for evidence, Morgan Freeman's character goes into the hold, and he sees all the chains hanging in the other paraphernalia of, of, of the slaves that were there, and, and, and he, he basically starts to panic and freaks out, and, and, and his performance is so great, but the music supports it as well. It's, it, 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 it's just great. As, as Sinke's theme is used here to underscore the slaves as a group, when Jotson sees the, the change, it's followed by what I thought was some Temple of Doom-style vocals in an African manner, and the background is as his terror grows as he begins to realize what was going on here. And Sinky's theme returns briefly with some percussion underneath when uh, Baldwin, played by McConaughey, finds the secret documents that are ultimately going to help him turn the tide in the courtroom case.
Now, the next musical cue in the film is one of those moments when John Williams shows he knows how to wring the emotion out of us. It's very subtle, and it comes when uh, Morgan Freeman's character goes to John Quincy Adams' home to plead with him one more time to speak in favor of the Africans. It seems the system is rigged against them. And Adams' funny line, in, in a very unlawly way, I'm giving you this advice for free, says that he wants to know the story of the Africans. And Morgan Freeman says, well, you know, they, they took over the ship and, and they're being tried. And, and he goes, no, 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 that's what happened to them. He goes, what's their story? And then Adams asks him, what's your story? And it's during this scene that Williams brings out a new theme as Adam describes to Freeman what his story really is and how inspiring it is. And it starts with Adam's theme proudly in the horns, then moves to this new theme in the woodwinds. Now, this new theme isn't Sinke's theme. It, it, it has the same softness. Now, I, I think we've talked, Jeff, we're going to call it the freedom thing, uh, the freedom thing for reasons we'll uncover a bit later. Now, it's not triumphant or overpowering here. It's very quiet and unvoiced. And I didn't recall, because, of course, you're watching the film, you don't know the score, but knowing the score, I noted the theme here because it's the first time in the movie that you actually hear that music. And and it really made me tear up. It, it You're never going to get that watching the movie the first time through, but it really shows just how Williams can underscore a scene and just how subtly he uses his music and themes. And it... it really hit me strong watching the movie this time. It's like, wow, that's the very first time you hear it in a certain way, and it just makes that scene land. It really choked me up. You know, Brian, I came to that realization, too, when I watched the movie recently, and I probably didn't remember it as well when I watched it the first time. But that's the one thing I enjoy the most about this podcast is hearing these little musical moments that I had never heard or recognized or moments that just escaped me. And... I had always thought that the first performance of this quote-unquote freedom theme had come during what seems like another typical boring courtroom movie scene, but it turns into something else at the end, thanks 
almost entirely to John Williams. Cinque is watching the lawyers argue, and the visuals make it seem like he is getting dizzy, and he's also sweating. Now, the strings in the choir kind of echo his frustration. And then, quietly, Cinque begins to speak out. Give us free. With the freedom theme rising as his voice elevates to a full shout. And the great Janusz Kaminski manning the camera on the shot of Cinque with his arms outstretched adds to the great emotion of this scene. The only gripe is that it just ends without any resolution. But this new theme, I just, I really loved it. It's iconic Williams, including the two repeated notes at the beginning to give the theme energy to start working its way through the chromatic scale. These notes give a very heroic feel to the music, especially when it's paired with Cinque finally deciding to speak out instead of sitting quietly in the courtroom. Yeah, it's uh, designed, obviously, by the storytellers to be a big moment in the film. And uh, to me, it's one of those classic Spielberg moments, which when they work, add that special emotional touch that 
tends to make his films so popular with people. But when they don't come off as well, they can stand out as just somewhat forced emotional manipulation. And with apologies to my guy Steve here, uh, this is one of the latter. It's overdone. Um, as I say, you get moved as it starts and you get all the people looking at him, but it it, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't lead to anything. There, there's no resolution. It's kind of just emotion there and a point there just for the making of it. It doesn't really help the narrative. But at least it gave Williams an opportunity to give us some great music. Now, just as a, a side note, when the soundtrack came out in 97, I was really looking forward to what Williams would do with the musical choices here. Now, as all soundtrack fans out there know, uh, another composer who often is mentioned along with the name John Williams, is the late Jerry Goldsmith, uh, a, a great composer in his own right. And at the time, Goldsmith had recently produced two African-themed scores, one for the film Congo in 1995, and another for the film Ghost in the Darkness in 1996. Now, as I've said before, John Williams is my number one favorite film composer uh, on my list. Jerry Goldsmith is an exceptionally close second. Uh, I love his work as much as Williams, and I bought these scores by Goldsmith, I'd listened to them, I enjoyed them quite a bit, and so, as a fan of film music and composers, I was really curious to hear what Williams would produce with, with a similar framing subject. Now, of course, I know Congo's action adventure, Ghost in the Darkness, is kind of old-fashioned, whereas Amistad has a very, 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 very different genre. Um, but I say, I found all the African-themed stuff very, very good, and I, I quite liked how Williams dealt with that sort of framing material. Uh, we're going to discuss a lot more about this theme, but before we do, I want to go a little bit back in the movie to talk about the extensive flashback describing the slave's journey from Africa. It's so heartbreaking to watch, but it's filmed so well. It's not as graphic or as real as anything Spielberg shot for Schindler's List, but it's still quite captivating. And again, the music helps. Yeah, um, this portion of the film made me think of the miniseries event of my youth, Roots, uh, in early 1977. And I really, watching Amistad, I, I was struck with how that television series in early 1977 depicted the brutality, degradation, and, and just the violence of slavery so, so, so graphically on television. And yet, much like I think what Spielberg does here, and I, I would say to people who haven't seen it, think of Hitchcock, Hitchcock's shower sequence in Psycho. You don't really show much, but it's implied. Uh, I watched it, what, after 30 years, and I was amazed certain scenes I just burst into tears and I could recite the lines exactly as the actors delivered them as they delivered them like so powerful uh, it makes the tears flow it's great Amistad's depiction is similar it just seems weaker to me say Roots did it on television in 1977 and, and you have the, the hor horrifying slave trip you have the slaves revolt on the ship the, the woman jumping overboard to escape the brutality throwing some slaves overboard the, the whipping uh, all brutally depicted in that series and it it struck me as I was preparing this it seemed odd that Spielberg is going to reference a, a famous silent film that celebrates the birth of the KKK, but he, he's not going to reference a classic television series. Though, as I thought about it, when Roots was airing, he would have been in the midst of uh, finishing up Close Encounters of the Third Kind, so he may not have seen it. Then I thought, well, maybe I'm thinking of Roots because he and Debbie Allen were referencing it. Either way, 
that thought process to sort of sum it back up to John Williams made me go, 1977 was quite a year for cultural phenoms. You had Roots and Star Wars within six months. And by the way, for film score fans, both had great scores too. Quincy Jones and Gerald Freed, with what possibly was a little bit of help from Henry Mancini as well, scored the miniseries Roots. And of course, we all know about this uh, Williams fellow who scored Star Wars. Now, I also have to say, I don't remember hearkening back to my memories of Roots when I first saw the film in 97. I was wondering why it was coming up so often uh, this time. And of course, in prepping for this podcast, I read some critical comments. And uh, many uh, critics wrote that the sequences on the slave ship Takora, Amistad is not the ship that brings Sinke and his, his fellow Africans from Africa. They, the, they're actually picked up and bought in the Caribbean. And it's the slave ship Takora that brings Sinke and his fellows to the Caribbean before they're loaded on the Amistad. And a lot of the critics thought these sequences were overly violent and brutal. And maybe that's what did it, because reading that, the first thing I thought was, did you guys not watch Roots? Yeah, it's amazing. Now, the music throughout Amistad, and especially in these flashbacks, is so strong and bold and in-your-face, just as much as the brutalities we see. Now, one moment that struck me after I first saw the movie is the scene when a baby is born in the bowels of the Portuguese ship and is handed to Sinke for safekeeping as the mother dies. Sinke's theme starts off this scene in the low strings, and then the trumpets come in, but I, it's not for heroism, as the trumpets usually are. I think it's to accentuate the tension in the scene, not to celebrate the baby's birth. This music's going to be used again a few minutes later in the harrowing scene when some of the slaves are chained to a bag of rocks and dropped into the ocean. There's one more brief moment in that flashback I want to highlight, and it's the tragic moment when a woman decides to fall overboard with her newborn instead of dealing with what lies ahead for them. The pan flute starts things out with a driving rhythm before Pamela Dillard's mezzo-soprano comes in with the main theme as this woman calmly falls off the ship and to her death.
And again, as we saw earlier with the Slave Revolt, that didn't need music. The visuals here, I don't think really needed the music, but adding in Dillard's voice heightens the sorrow of the moment. And like I said, Dillard seems to be crying sometimes when she's humming this theme. It's a very soft touch here for Williams, especially since at the same time, there are slaves being brutally whipped on the deck of the ship. Being in the industry, that is an in, that sequence where, as we find out later, they are extraneous slaves. The crew of the Takora didn't have enough supplies, so they had to get rid of some extra cargo, as it's put in the in the film, and and they're put the rocks to the chain and go overboard. Uh, it's incredible stunt work in that the the stunt performers are naked obviously chained, sliding across a wooden deck over the edge and into the water. Now, of course, there's divers in the water to, to help them, but as much as you can grease that deck down, the, those performers, they're, they're totally naked. They've got slivers, they've got scrapes, cuts, and again, much like oh, what's going to come in Saving Private Ryan, you watch that sequence and I go, once you're struck by it, you think back and you go, how did you go from cut, okay, everyone out of the water, reset, back to ones, go again for the next take. Like, it's, it, it's incredible, incredible film work. And again, maybe today also what might strike people is that's not CGI, that's actual actors going through that. It, it, it adds totally to just the, the, the horror of, of that scene. And Spielberg as a filmmaker, when you watch that, you identify with the people going over the end. You go under the water with them. So it, it just adds to just the impact of that scene. Yeah, I think they probably had to go through 10 takes at least of different shots because you probably had to do five, six, seven takes of them sliding off the ship. And then you had to do five, six, seven takes of them actually underwater struggling to get to the surface. So that is that is why stunt people in, in the movies don't get their due. I think that is... An extraordinary that was an extraordinary day or week or, or month of whatever they had to do my hats off to them because it they made it real yeah probably a couple of cameras set up but no you're you're right people should go those performers had to do that probably at least 10 times over probably two days yeah all right so let's get back to this freedom theme now after Sinke's initial outburst in the courtroom the theme is not heard for almost an hour in the film and it comes after John Adams's stirring speech in the Supreme Court, which Anthony Hopkins, by the way, reportedly delivered perfectly on the first take. Now, that speech brings final victory for the Africans. And though historians have noted that Adams's speech in the Supreme Court was different from what Hopkins delivered, it still stirs up the emotions. So once everyone says their goodbyes, including a fairly emotional one between Sinke and Baldwin, we cut to British soldiers invading the West African fortress where the Portuguese were wrangling Africans for the slave trade. The freedom theme comes in strongly through the horns, followed by the choir singing actual lyrics now as the Africans are liberated from captivity.
The words the choir is singing come from a 1967 poem called Dry Your Tears Africa by Bernard Dadier, a poet from the Ivory Coast. The original words are in French, which is the native language of Ivory Coast, and it is an attempt to heal Africa's wounds from centuries of slavery and colonialism. Now, part of the text is translated into English as follows. Dry your tears, Africa. Your children are coming back to you. Out of the storms and squalls of fruitless journeys, out of the gold of the east and the purple of the setting sun, the peaks of mountains and grass drenched with light, they return to you. Very uplifting, actually. John Williams found this poem and decided it would fit perfectly into the film. And instead of using the original French language, which would have seemed out of place, Williams had the French text translated into Mende, which is the language that the Africans speak in the film. Now, there aren't reliable online language translators that could help me determine if the translation into Mende is correct, but what I am sure of is that Williams picked a great text to use. So once the slave fortress in Lombanco has been cleared, a British captain, played by Peter Firth, gives the command to fire on the fortress to destroy it. It's at this point that the choir changes from children to adults as we see the cannons completely destroy the fortress. So I want to share something. Not too long ago, I received an email from Karen Halinga, who said the music written for John Quincy Adams was, quote, some of the most beautiful and delicate Americana music that he has composed, end quote. But she had issues with Dry Your Tears Africa. She said, quote, I have never understood why the chorus sounds so happy, end quote. So I wrote back to her, and in my reply, I told her that the placement of the song in the film comes at a time of celebration, hence the uplifting tone. And she also asked why Williams incorporated a whip into such a happy-sounding piece. And that surprised me, because I never heard a whip being used in this piece. So Karen, what you might think is a whip is actually a bunch of thin wooden sticks hitting the side of a timpani drum. And you wrote that you had seen a performance of this at Tanglewood with John Williams conducting. And so I would imagine that these sticks were used to create the same sounds then as well. So Karen, I hope I've resolved your issues with the score to this film. And I hope 
maybe you'll understand why the tone of Drive Your Truth to Africa is as it is. Yeah, this scene has the wonderful moment of payoff when Peter Firth's Captain Fitzgerald dictates a letter to Secretary of State John Forsyth. Mr. Secretary, you are correct. The slave fortress of Sierra Leone does not exist. Again, it, it, it might be a tad too much for some people, but I remember it got a big cheer from the theater audience when I saw it, and it definitely puts a smile on my face every time I view it. Now, the scene depicting the release of the Africans is followed by a series of short scenes that tell us what followed the trial. And this includes a setup for the American Civil War, which is depicted by a scene of a battle charge. And that's the part that struck me as lifted directly from the 1915 film Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith, which is often studied in film schools as the first American major motion picture. And it certainly has some epic scenes, including a very famous Civil War scene, which the first part of which Spielberg seems to duplicate identically. Uh, but Birth of a Nation is, is about essentially the formation of the KKK, um, it, it's since been viewed as an extremely racist propaganda film, and you sort of wonder, why would Spielberg quote that in what is an anti-slavery film? And you could also argue that he never actually was referring to Birth of a Nation, it's just that iconic Civil War battle scene from it is so iconic that that's what listeners, uh, uh, listeners, sorry, that that's what viewers will immediately go to. Overall, though, uh, this, uh, Dry Your Tears Africa music is what I enjoy most on the recording. It plays three times on the CD, and based on that, you might think it appears throughout the film. But no, it makes its first appearance, as we've discussed, in the What's Their Story scene, very quiet, with no vocals, and only plays out full in this sequence and again in the end titles. And this piece does have, as you mentioned, such a... You know, the the lyrics are, are very pleasant. It, it has such a sense of joy to it. Uh, you know, it does underscore a victory, but it's a bitter one. And, and as the music plays, it does kind of fade, and that sense of joy does fade in both the final version and in the end credits. So after the destruction of the slave fortress, William ties this whole movie into a nice bow musically in the final scene, as we see Sinke and his fellow Africans on a boat, headed home, dressed in their finest garb, looking to the east. Pamela Dillard brings back her performance of Sinke's theme, intermingled with the performance of Dry Your Tears Africa. It's not as celebratory as before, as we get information that Sinke's family might have been sold into slavery and that his country is engaged in a civil war. Now, going back to Karen's comment, this is the one moment when Dry Your Tears Africa has a sad undertone to it, made even more so by that tear that flows down Sinke's cheek.
Yes, and there's that final shot of the ship's prow heading into the sun, uh, which is repeated uh, from the opening post-revolt portion of the film, which it pops up quite a few times, that shot, in, in that part of the movie. It, it, it's hopeful yet hopeless, uh, reminding me of the old saying that I think sums up uh, one of the themes of this movie is you can't go home again. And from personal experience going to my old neighborhood, I know you can go to the old neighborhood, you can pass by the old place, look over the fence into the yard, but you can't never, you can never go back to that home again. And so, ultimately, it's not really the happy ending that we're used to getting from Mr. Steven Spielberg. I know. And he's going to start making a lot of movies after this that have ambiguous endings or outright sad ones. Um, Just a few of them are Saving Private Ryan, Munich, AI, and, of course, Lincoln. And I think Amistad's not-so-happy ending might have been one reason why this film didn't do well at the box office. And, of course, another might be the long-awaited arrival of that big ship Titanic to the big screen, which would dwarf everything in its wake. So when we get to the end credits, it gives us a full performance of the Dry Your Tears Africa song, plus a piece written just for the end credits that features Tim Morrison at his best on the trumpet. He gives us another performance of the Adams theme, then concludes with the Dryer Tears theme. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful music. So, watching the film this time, I, I still really enjoyed it. Uh, and regardless, with some of my nitpicks, I, I, I do think Spielberg and Company put together a very entertaining and moving film, which is well worth watching if you haven't seen it yet. Yes, I really hope you watch it. Everybody needs to watch it. Uh, you know, historians had noted those numerous nitpicks that you had mentioned in a few others, including the numerous references to the impending civil war that wouldn't happen for about 20 years, and the history of the slaves that were aboard the Amistad. Now, I agree that it is a very moving film, and it's not really that boring, even at two and a half hours long. It kind of still keeps moving forward. Now, it could be argued that the Spielberg curse affected Jaiman Onsu, because he never, ever got another lead role in a film after this. He'll earn two Oscar nominations for Supporting Actor, playing an African painter in In America, and a former diamond mine worker in Blood Diamond. And he's always popping up in small roles here and there. I remember he was in Gladiator, and he did a almost a cameo in Guardian of the Galaxy Volume 2, which I didn't know he was doing, and then he popped up, and I kind of almost did a mini cheer when I was watching it. But 
never a lead role, but at least he's still acting, and we can be very happy about that. Now, though Titanic managed to take down lots of competitors that winter, Amistad still made a profit for DreamWorks. Despite two things that could signal box office poison, it being a historical film and it being very long, Amistad did make a small profit from its $44 million box office receipts. Amistad was the second film released by DreamWorks, and the first, as I said earlier, The Peacemaker, made more than $100 million that fall. So DreamWorks was off to a good start when 1997 came to an end. But unfortunately, Amistad's Oscar nomination for Best Picture did not materialize. The film earned four nominations, including cinematography and costume design, as well as supporting actor for Anthony Hopkins. A lot of people lobbied for Unsu to get an Oscar nomination for lead actor, but the competition was too tight that year. If the film had been nominated for Best Picture, Debbie Allen would have become the first African-American woman to get an Oscar nomination for Best Picture as one of the producers. That distinction would later go to Oprah Winfrey for 2014 Selma. So that fourth nomination was John Williams's for the score, his 36th Oscar nomination, which made him now fourth among all-time Oscar nominees, breaking the tie he had with Edith Head. Now, he was in the original dramatic score category for Amistad against some pretty good competition, including the unstoppable James Horner score for Titanic. Now, as you may have surmised, Dry Your Tears Africa was not eligible for an Oscar nomination for original song because the lyrics were adapted from a pre-existing source. It would not have beaten the song from Titanic, but it would have been just one of a few songs performed in another language to be nominated for an Oscar. Williams received a Grammy nomination for the Amistad soundtrack, and it was a deserved nomination. Besides portions of the film score, there's a nice concert suite of Cinque's theme and a standalone piece for Pamela Dillard called Cinque's Memories of Home that feels very much like the solo piece he wrote for cellist Yo-Yo Ma for the Seven Years in Tibet soundtrack. Now, since it was released in late 1997, it had to compete at the Grammys against a few soundtracks for films released in 1998, including his very next project, Saving Private Ryan. Now, you're going to have to listen to the Saving Private Ryan episode to find out how that Grammy category turned out. That's just one reason why I'm excited to listen to your Saving Private Ryan episode. Uh, another is, it's a score that I don't really have a strong attachment to. To be unpolitically correct, I think it's actually kind of dull, um, which seems surprising. But one of the reasons is, I think like Midway from the mid-70s, Williams doesn't really score any action sequences in it. He mostly does the lead-up and after effect. But... The reason why I'm looking forward to your podcast is I've found in some of the episodes you've done on other scores that I find equally dull, The Accidental Tourist and Sabrina Sabrina coming to mind, for example, uh, your look increased my appreciation for those scores. So I'm looking forward to you doing that again for me with your Saving Private Ryan podcast as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to see if I can make you a fan of that score. So though Spielberg pretty much went straight from filming Amistad to filming Saving Private Ryan, John Williams did get a little bit of a break while Spielberg was on the coast of Ireland filming his now legendary Omaha Beach Battle. Yeah, Amistad is, uh, has a special footnote in Spielberg's career. It's one of the few films he did post-production on remotely, 
due to his shooting schedule for Saving Private Ryan. And it made me think, listening and noticing that similarity in, in, in sort of the Americana, if that's one of the reasons why both films have a similar soundtrack, you know, maybe it's something you'll look at in your next episode. You know, I don't think that um, Spielberg fully let go of Amistad when he started on Saving Private Ryan. So the visuals that he created kind of gave, and I think maybe even Williams didn't let go of Amistad. I think they both just said, okay, let's take that same Americana feel in the music for Amistad and, and kind of transplant it over in Saving Private Ryan. And as as I'll discuss, it, it does have its pros and cons, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be discussing that in the next episode. All right, Brian, this has been great. It's been so much fun talking about John Williams with you for the third time. Well, third time's a charm, they say. <laughs> and Anyway, you know, as you know, I'm always happy spending time with you and your listeners talking about uh, the music of my favorite film composer, John Williams. Thanks so much for having me back again to discuss this score and for your efforts to bring us all more such discussions each week on The Baton. And for all of you who are liking what you're hearing, I strongly urge you to write a review on Apple Podcast. These positive reviews help drive the show up the rankings and bring the show more exposure. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take just a couple minutes to do so. And you could also reach me by email at jeffswim at aol.com. And it's been great sharing this time with you. And until next time, the baton is down. <laughs> <laughs>